Welcome to Have You Heard? I'm Jennifer Berkshire. And I'm Jack Schneider. And what you just heard was a clip from an all-star television extravaganza. It was quite a spectacle. That was the XQ Super School show that ran on all four major networks in in September. And just in case you happen to miss it, XQ is a production brought to us by Laureen Powell Jobs. She's the widow of Steve Jobs and the inheritress of an uh, enormous fortune via Apple. I think she's worth something like $14 billion. And she is devoting a sizable chunk of that money to rethinking high school. Yeah. You know, I I really like that clip uh, that we opened with Jennifer because uh, it really distills their vision, right? That uh, the phones and cars have changed and therefore uh, the American high school is uh, a complete travesty that we need to tear down to uh, to its studs and then rebuild. Um, and you, I think it's it's worth just uh, joining me uh, on a on a talk through right now uh, in terms of what I can see when I look out the window of my time machine. Here, uh, the year is nineteen hundred. Um, the Model T has not quite rolled off of the factory floor yet, but soon will. Um, the telephone is in its early days, and here we have the bad old high school that looks exactly like uh, the high schools that we have today, except there are a few differences. Um, uh, we have almost total segregation in these high schools that I'm looking at right now. Um, there's no special education any child who has uh, learning differences, uh, any sort of uh, physical or cognitive difference uh, cannot be served by this school. Some of these schools have up to 100 students in each class. Uh, I'm looking at a picture right now of desks bolted down. There are roughly 100 desks in this classroom. Uh, I'm looking at an all-white teaching force in uh, the the white schools. and I'm seeing on the board uh, some notes indicating that this is a, uh, a class in Greek 
And I'm seeing that the schedule has us headed to Latin, followed by mechanical drawing, and afterwards a course in zoology. Uh, at the end of the day, uh, our students who constitute, you know, roughly 20% of uh, American high school age students will head home and join the majority of students who are not enrolled in high school uh, and then carry on with their tasks, you know, presumably uh, hoping for uh, better cars and better phones that will match the schools that have just been created for them, uh, which is another part of this story. And of course, we can remember that that too uh, is a somewhat misleading claim because the American high school was actually invented before America was. America's oldest high school is Boston Latin, which is not too far from where we're recording right now, and uh, predates the United States by over a century. And, uh, and so this, I think all of this really challenges this narrative that high schools were built at a particular moment in time. They were designed in a sort of fixed way and we put them away and we never really revisited them until we realized that times had changed, that we've got smartphones now and there are Teslas out on the road and that we really need to rethink what we're doing in high schools. Well, despite the star-studded cast, there's something so sort of soothing and reassuring about the claims that are being made that that anyone can grasp that concept that our high schools haven't changed. But definitely, you know, in addition to playing on a misunderstanding about the past, there are definitely anxieties about the future that, that are being played upon too, right? That that, that things seem to have sped up. Parents are understandably worried about the fates and fortunes of their own kids. And so the other part of the argument being made is that the jobs of the future haven't yet been invented, and yet the kids who are going to be in those jobs are in schools now. And I was thinking as, as I heard that, obviously I was really distracted by Samuel L. Jackson, and when they played that Breakfast Club song, that's really speaking to my generation. But you could make that argument argument about any generation of kids, couldn't you? You know, I like to picture uh, Henry Ford standing uh, at the doorstep of the high school and pointing a menacing finger at it and accusing it of not preparing the workforce that he needs uh, for the jobs of the future. Uh, so you're absolutely right. And I, I think a further uh, point that needs to be made here in terms of thinking about this narrative is the fact that Schools do far more than prepare students for future labor. Um, you know, yes, it is true that right now uh, there are jobs out there that require, uh, you know, skills like coding, for instance, and that schools could be teaching those skills. Employers could also be teaching those skills, and we could leave schools uh, to educate children and to prepare them to participate as citizens, uh, to learn to appreciate arts and music, to discover their talents and abilities, to develop basic uh, math and even advanced math skills, to develop basic and even advanced reading skills without any concern for how those will help them uh, be efficient employees at Apple or Tesla. And so, you know, the, the constrained narrative around what the purpose of school is and the idea that because students are not leaving high school directly ready uh, for the workforce is a kind of a false 
narrative that suggests that the purpose of high school has always been to prepare students for work. Once upon a time, it did a good job. It's no longer doing that. And of course, that actually has never been the purpose of high school at any point. That's actually the new piece that is being thrust on to the American high school. We did an episode uh, a few weeks ago that explored a last big vision for change that was driven by an enormously wealthy individual who derived his his fortune from the tech industry. And that was that, a really good episode. People should go back into the archives. They, and look at that they one. should. And that was Bill Gates. And his dream was to make every school a small school. As when we ended that episode, we noted that that despite it, despite some promising research in some places, that vision has been cast by the wayside. And and really what you saw on the XQC. Super School special is the new billionaire dream. I also saw a lot of singing and dancing, and I just think it's worth noting that uh, I think if we added up all of the clips from that special where we were actually looking at schools and quote-unquote innovative practices, they might have constituted about 10 minutes of that total hour-long special. It's a special treat before we go to our guest. Can we play the Breakfast Club song? Let's do it. On any given morning... In the United States, more than 15 million students can be found in high schools like this one, an ordinary school in an ordinary town. When students cross this threshold, they bring their hopes and dreams only to encounter a system that no longer helps them achieve these goals. This system has been around for a very long time, and it worked quite well for a very long time but it hasn't kept up with the changes necessary to get kids ready for life after high school in the 21st century. While people talk about what needs to be done all the time, very little seems to uh, actually change. Dispirited and demoralized, far too many of today's high school students wage a daily struggle against apathy and, and inertia. And Rick, why are you going off me? Hey, Rick. We're joined now by Megan Tompkins-Stange. Megan is an assistant professor of public policy at the University of Michigan, and she's the author of one of the best books on big education philanthropy that I've come across. It's called Policy Patrons, Philanthropy, Education Reform, and the Politics of Influence. Megan, thanks for joining us. Oh, thanks so much. I'm so happy to be here. Well, the thing that's so interesting about your book is that for years you got to be basically a fly on the wall talking to people at some big education philanthropies, including Broad and Gates and and Ford, and you really got key insight into the way that they think. And what Jack and I were wondering as we just forced ourselves to sit through XQ Super School show again. We were wondering if if there's anything in what you picked up along the way that gives you into insight into the kind of thinking that would produce a project like this, an all-star, big money, glitzy effort to rethink our high schools. That's a really great question. I would say, you know, well, first I would say, and I'm sure Jack has mentioned this before, but this has been going on for a hundred years, right? People are always wanting to rethink schools to create them from whole cloth to uh, tinker in the words of Tyak and Cuban towards a better model for high school. And so I think that that general ethos of wanting to build something kind of new and sexy and innovative, as opposed to 
dealing with the messy bureaucracy that exists. I think that is something very common to most foundations. I'd say in the tech and new education foundations like Gates and Road that I've, uh, you know, that I covered in the book, and then also new philanthropic pursuits uh, like Chan Zuckerberg Initiative, they tend to really embrace that due to their core values and sort of expertise as organizations, which is, of course, technology, and wanting to disrupt what are perceived as really inefficient bureaucracies and wanting to do things new and more efficiently and, to their minds, more effectively. But (laughs) those themes that I've seen both in the book and through the XQ marketing campaign, those are not always... Well, I'd say those are almost never the best fit for actually making inroads into public education. I want to play another brief clip from the XQ show. This is Chance the Rapper, one of many celebrity guests who was featured. Chance has been very involved in raising money for the Chicago public schools. But here he makes an argument that you often hear big philanthropists make about what it takes to fix schools. Communities throughout America can come together and create the type of education that honors and respects the potential of every child. It's not a question of whether we can, it's a question of whether we will. Whether we decide to choose a better future for our kids. Because they need us, and we need them. Don't ever forget that. Megan, what do you think when you hear that argument about mustering the will to reform public education? Yeah, I mean, so that assumption is baked into, I think, much of the education, the new education philanthropy's DNA and sort of core values that um, almost a fundamentally pejorative view towards efforts that have been made up to this point that, you know, one of the quotes in my book is that the real problem is stupidity. Right. So that the wrong people are doing this, that people who have managerial knowledge or entrepreneurial knowledge are more um, equipped to handle these challenging problems. Um, and so the assumption is that if we bring in people and new frameworks and new ways of rethinking high school, that somehow those people will be much better equipped to address these challenges. And so goes to so many problems, I think, with the whole ed reform movement, but more specifically in ed philanthropy, which is this almost very paternalistic view towards teachers, towards the institutions of education and how people are trained to be teachers, and sort of this very naive assumption that, you know, you don't really need to be a rocket scientist, right, to do this, that this this is not hard, this is just something that if we worked harder, if we had the right people doing this, we could overcome. And time after time throughout history, we've seen that's just not the case. You know, Bill Gates was saying almost identical language back in 2000 when he was talking about let's rethink high school, let's make everything small, right? Let's make these small classrooms and that's going to be the thing that really creates the tipping point. And of course, that didn't work. I want to 
add one more observation to this, and that's just that um, there's also a, a total failure to distinguish between problems and dilemmas, because there are, in fact, still problems that we are dealing with in terms of our schools. Um, the fact that we still have high levels of school segregation, for instance, that's a problem. But then there are dilemmas, which unlike problems can't be solved, can only be managed. And one dilemma is, how do you do all the things that you want to do uh, during a limited school day uh, and a limited school year. Um, how can we help students develop their whole human potential when uh, there are so many elements that are outside of our control right. as educators? Uh, when you know developing one's whole human potential actually takes a whole life um, and we're trying to cram it in between uh, grades K and 12. But I wanted to transition Megan, to ask you a question about uh, the sorts of things that philanthropists do in order to get the kind of impact that one might imagine they'd get for, let's say, a billion dollars. And, you know, I just did a quick math problem. I multiplied 10,000, which is, you know, a ballpark for the national per pupil expenditure average. And then I just multiplied that by 50 (laughs) million, the number of students in the public schools in the United States. And I got so many zeros that I started drawing with a dry erase marker on my computer screen to try to figure out how many billions that was. And it reminds me of a comment that a senior scholar made to me a number of years ago about Walter Annenberg's gift to the Chicago Public Schools, where he said, Walter Annenberg pissed away half a billion dollars and got nothing in return for it. And so that seems to me to be a a, a key fact to keep in mind when we're thinking about the way that policy patrons, to use your term, uh, are thinking about their influence uh, in American public education? Sure. So I would say to that point, I think billionaires who want to make a big impact in education do think all those zeros, um, but you know, all those zeros are much more money than what any philanthropist can do, right? So in California, the public school budget is what, like $50 billion. The philanthropic contributions to public schools are like $1.5 billion, and Gates is most of that, right? So whatever philanthropic foundations do, it's nothing compared to the scope and scale of the state. So what I've seen from billionaires doing, you know, attempting to have impact in education is that they're turning to policy influence. You know, in earlier years, the Annenberg Challenge, they are giving money to a wide variety of different places, districts, schools, spreading it out so much that it really didn't have impact in any one place. And so you would think that, you know, $500 million would make that impact, but it didn't. And so the new philanthropists are kind of taking a page from that in some sense um, by focusing on uh, targeting advocacy and policy-related initiatives. So you know, 10 years ago, this wasn't a trend, but in probably about since 2008, um, with the Obama administration coming in and sort of the philanthropist being even though, we start to see a huge proportion of budgets shift towards direct funding of advocacy organizations, funding of efforts to sway public opinion. Of course, foundations are under some political restrictions as to what they can and cannot do in terms of lobbying. But you can do a lot of things that are lobbying by another name, right? So the Broad Foundation has moved to something like 50% or more of their budget is advocacy-related expenses. Um, Gates is also going that way. And that's something you would never have seen um, 
even like a decade ago. And it's, again, founded in this concept of sort of a managerial or entrepreneurial value that you want to get the most bang for your buck. At several points during the XQ show, audience members were encouraged to take some kind of action. They could text message their support or send away for a kit about how to run for their local school board. Megan, there's a term that pops up again and again in your book, theory of change. Explain to us what that means and how it relates to the sales pitch that we've been listening to. Sure. So a theory of change is essentially a management tool for managing complex social change initiatives. And it was started by foundations in the 90s to try to guide evaluation and seeing if, you know, nonprofits were meeting their goals. And so theory of change is essentially how you explain how a certain strategy or course of action is going to result in the outcomes that you want. So you always start from the top. And if the outcome you want is rethinking high school, you might build backward from that. So in order to rethink high school, what needs to happen before that? And so you go down a path of, you know, intermediate outcomes, outputs, and and inputs. And it's all based on assumptions. So in the case of XQ, the assumptions would be that high schools are failing, um, that the existing human capital is incompetent, that a school can fix social ills, um, including adverse childhood effects that occur before they even set foot in the classroom. And their theory of change seems to be that if we dramatically, you know, change the structure, the delivery system, and the people, that we'll get to better outcomes eventually, that we'll be able to transform education such that we're a leader in the world in terms of our test scores. I've done a little bit of research into the world of big philanthropy as well, though not as much as you. And one of the things that I found was that so many assumptions and beliefs are shared within these circles um, mm-hmm. and that the social network tends to be both tight and fairly closed. And I'm wondering if you can uh, talk through for us a bit why it is, and I'm going to oversimplify here, but why it is that all of these folks tend to believe the same stuff. For instance, I could run a cottage industry just replying to all of the uh, philanthropic edu-reformers who tell a story about the history of the American high school or the the history of American public schools that is totally wrong. Um, Yeah. And yet, uh, I could only run that cottage industry because whatever I'm doing and whatever others are doing is not penetrating that bubble at all. So I'm wondering if you could talk through that a little bit. Yeah, so... It's because the edu reform movement is really a self-reinforcing network of folks who are generally connected to the same sort of support organizations, including foundations. So take the Broad Foundation, for example. And they invest in getting people into the right places and funding pipelines for edu reformers to take leadership positions in schools and in districts. So going back to your original question, Jennifer, about running for the school board, Broad trains superintendents to go take over big city districts. It trains fellows to go into uh, these districts or in state government and spread these ideas. And so the last statistic I saw was something like, I don't even want to say, but it was like 80% of urban, the largest urban school districts have Broad trained superintendents, meaning that they were Broad fellows and they went through a residency training program that focuses on these very values about disruption, about failure about the levers which it will take to change the existing system, which are, of course, often charter schools, accountability, 
measurements uh, and competition, right? So um, the Broad is one point of that. There's there's a lot of sharing in the ad reform movement. I remember I was talking to the founder of a big charter school, Shane, who's now a major person at a big foundation. He was saying, you know, we envision this movement as happening through our organization or organizations like us. So they would literally share business plans for charter school organizations. They would network very um, closely amongst one another. And most of the folks 10 years ago who were in those networks, those nascent networks, are now in high levels of government or um, at foundations themselves. So it's a rhetoric that is cultivated and um, communicated um, in a reinforcing way. And uh, until recently, the um, those networks and relatively close to people who think differently, right? So, for example, parents, uh, advocacy groups who are not about competition and choice, who might believe more in unions and the power that unions can have for good. And I know someone's going to probably hate tweet me about saying anything good about unions. But in terms of talk about an echo chamber, that's very much the case. And I've seen several foundations begin to depart from that in terms of trying to bring in more voices of folks from the communities that they're investing in, um, actually maybe working with school boards as opposed to wanting mayoral control or a more um, a smaller group of people that are more easy to work with and have that efficient and quick route towards the changes they want to make. And realizing that some of these reforms that have failed did so because they were, A, too fast, and B, too concentrated on people in elite positions and not people who are actually doing the work on the ground. That was Megan Tompkins-Stain. She is an assistant professor of public policy at the University of Michigan and the author of Policy Patrons, Philanthropy, Education Reform, and the Politics of Influence. And Jack, we talked a little bit about the various channels through which the XQ Super School project might be sort of percolating that, you know, you can call and get your, um, you can send away for your school board kit. You could, uh, they were encouraging people to send text messages, but we didn't mention that the Laureen Powell Jobs is a prominent education reformer in her own right. She runs a group called the Emerson Collective that has tentacles in all the things that, that Megan just described. And as of this summer, uh, Laureen Powell Jobs is also sort of your boss. She uh, purchased a, a majority stake in the Atlantic magazine for which you write. So you'll notice that uh, that whenever I publish anything critical of her, that I publish it with different billionaires, John Henry, owner of the Red Sox and the Boston Globe, or Jeff Bezos, owner of Amazon and the Washington Post. So, you know, I keep my billionaires uh, straight and I, I try to let them criticize each other. The um, one thing about the show that we didn't talk about, there was a kind of a red carpet uh, event that was meant to honor teachers. And it didn't quite come off. And one of the reasons that it didn't quite come off is that lurking just off stage, you can really feel the kind of the iron fist, right? That that um, I just finished writing an essay about the influence of education reform in the Democratic Party. And I have a great quote from a campaign manager for Bill Clinton in Arkansas in the 90s, where the Clintons were really the first to run against the teachers union. And he said, you know, if you're going to turn an institution upside down, you need a villain. And even though XQ Super School didn't make teachers 
explicitly the villain, you could still kind of sense that they're the ones blocking the schoolhouse door. They're the ones who are keeping the school as a metaphorical switchboard or Model T, if you will. They really are. Now, um, Jack, I know that I promised you that we could go out playing your favorite clip from XQ Super Schools. Do you, are we lined up and ready to go? I think we're ready. Well, it's my second favorite clip because my other favorite clip, clip is Samuel L. Jackson. Uh, but let me see if I can find this before I play it. Uh, a little reminder to our listeners that if you're enjoying what you hear, please go on iTunes or whatever your podcast source is and give us a rating. It helps people find us. And with that, I'm sending us out. I'm Jack Schneider. And I'm Jennifer Berkshire. Thank you for listening to Have You Heard. Have You Heard.